sad stretch in the soccer calendar the time of year when the world cup has just ended and no other soccer or sport we watch in general can quite measure up to all the crazy action we saw over the past few months this year's tournament set that bar particularly high with some truly memorable moments Uh, we'll try our best to remiss about all those highs and lows of russia 2018 today on the footy talks podcast we'll also talk the highs and probably a lot more lows of toronto fc uh, to do all that, it's the return of 680 News soccer reporter Michael Leach. Uh, Michael, the first time I had you on was the week after the Champions League final, so it seems like you've kind of become my go-to guest for uh, breaking down these big games. Yeah, yeah. well, uh, you know what? I, uh, they're the big events, and we, we love the big events. We love, we love all of the games, but certainly these, uh, these big ones. And the, and the last month with the World Cup was... Absolutely tremendous, and it's uh, it's the biggest one of all. So I'm happy to join you uh, to to wrap it up. Yeah, well, appreciate you taking the time, and uh, it actually seems like more than you know. It was a couple of days ago that the uh, the champion, or sorry, the uh, World Cup final happened. It seems like so long now, but uh, obviously French France Croatia. I watched the game with a a very rowdy bunch of French supporters. Uh, there might have been more Croatians there, but considering or uh, considering kind of how the game went, it was the French that I heard for most of the game at the rec room as as part of our few our footy talks uh, viewing party. Um, you know, but I thought it was pretty much a perfect final to cap off, uh, you know, a fantastic tournament. There was a number of goals. The first time a team scored four goals in a World Cup final since 1970. There was a, it started with a set piece own goal, which pretty much sums up uh, every goal at this tournament. And, and there was plenty of drama in general. It was it was quite an exciting game. Yeah, I mean, you know, certainly, and I think the way that I. Uh... The way that I categorize that game is is that it was a bit of a microcosm for the entire tournament, mm-hmm. uh, as you said, with the set piece goals and uh, the own goals, and obviously VAR getting involved as well. But <laughs> also, you know, just the, the the Croatians falling behind, battling back, and then eventually just running out of gas. I think in the second half, I think France was just a little bit too much for them. I know a lot of people are were sort of suggesting that. Croatia was maybe a little bit hard done by not to get a better result with uh, you know, certainly the, the first goal being uh, a questionable at best mm. uh, free kick, uh, you know, given to the French yeah. and, and then, you know, the penalty awarded through uh, through the video assistant referee. Yeah, it, it was it was a tremendous game. It had a little bit of everything, uh, a goalkeeping gaffe. Uh, by by Loris at the end there that really didn't play into the result all that much, but it was a little bit entertaining and brought the score a little bit closer. But yeah, it was it was a tremendous game and and a nice way to cap off the tournament. Obviously, the French lift, lifting the trophy in the end. I I'd, I'd kind of taken to calling the French Atletico France because that's basically the style they played. Is that Atletico Madrid style? Two nice sets of of four. Um, you know, just such a defensive style and it kind of felt throughout the tournament like they kept all of this amazing talent that they had so muzzled and uh, they weren't really letting them express themselves. But obviously at the, you know, at the end it, it worked out. So it doesn't really matter what I think now. Well, I, I, I think you can do that when you've got explosive, dynamic, 
offensive components who can get forward with pace like Killian Mbappe, and it was nice mm-hmm. to see him score because this tournament was certainly a coming-out party for him. I know a lot of us had knew a little bit of, about what he could do going into the tournament, but certainly for the more casual fan, uh, this was definitely an eye-opener for them in terms of, of the 19-year-old Frenchman. Uh, you know, as well as 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 Paul Pogba and, and uh, Antoine Griezmann, when you've got those kind of explosive uh, offensive components, it allows you the opportunity to sit back and defend and absorb a little bit of pressure and then punch on the counter. And I think that's that's another thing I think we saw a lot more of in this tournament is is teams taking advantage of the counter attack more so than necessarily creating offense through build-up. That's a great point. And uh, kind of the man who we we saw kind of get them to play that style. And I was one of the people who was very critical of Didier Deschamps because, you know, I really wanted to see him just let these players go and, and see what they could do. But, uh, you know, he, he led them in that style. He was able to find a style that um, really worked in modern football and really worked in this tournament. He, now he becomes the third man to to win a World Cup as as a manager and a player, um, joining Mario Zagallo and, and Franz Beckenbauer of Germany. Um, you know, he's still, even after the tournament, I think it was Hatem Benarfa um, writing a column saying that he should resign so this French team can play the play the beautiful soccer that that they should but uh, maybe some sour grapes there from a former French international but honestly you know it's it's always been a bit of an issue getting a French team on the same page so um, I think you just have to give him credit for what he was able to do oh absolutely I mean I'll be honest with you I I saw the uh, the USA France friendly a week before the tournament opened and mm. the French were so uninspiring in their play in that game and I thought we're maybe a, even a little bit lucky to get a draw out of that out of that game against the Americans and I thought for sure that you know Didier Deschamps would be leaving Russia uh, with a pink slip in hand or or a resignation <laughs> letter uh, instead he leaves with the World Cup and you know what it's a bit of a master stroke in my opinion to get those big name players with with, with the big egos to perform as a group and 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 certainly to buy into that system that, as you said, you know, very Atletico style of, of, of defend first and then create your offense through the defense. And, and you know, I really feel that, that you know, Deschamps got more out of Paul Pogba uh, over the past four weeks than we've seen <laughs> from Pogba since he left Juventus. And that's, that's not easy to do. So... I think it takes a per, you know particular personality, and and Deschamps obviously has pedigree with these French players, uh, being that he you know as you said he's he's now the third man to to uh, to manage a World Cup champion, but also to play on a World Cup championship team with uh, with France back in '98. As you said, he was really able to get the French players to kind of check their ego at the door. One of the things I, I noticed about the French team and. You know, uh, it's it's a little disappointing for me. I, I really like the flashy haircuts and the flashy moves of, of soccer players, but you saw Pogba with probably the most understated haircut he's ever had. Same for Antoine Griezmann. 
Um, they just looked like super clean cut. They, nobody really stood out on that team. Um, and that's kind of the way they, they wanted it was kind of off the field. They were able to do whatever they wanted. I, I've seen videos and listening to music and playing Fortnite and all that stuff. But on the field, it was very much we buy into this system. No one's above this team. And, and we play this, um, you know, this incredible defensive style. And perhaps nobody embodied that more than N'Golo Conte, the Chelsea midfielder, who uh, I feel as though if he had maybe uh, a better final and, you know, he, he apparently he had a stomach bug going in that final he might have been in the conversation for golden ball player we've seen uh, kind of after the after the tournament um in in all the celebrations and, and those sort of things we've seen a lot of uh kind of this N'Golo Conte chant catching on which talks about him shutting down Messi and how fantastic he was at the tournament and, he, and it's so funny to see because I don't think anyone's more uncomfortable by that chant than N'Golo Conte you just see him kind of like guys please stop and I think that makes the French players enjoy it even more but <laughs> yeah. what a fantastic tournament from uh, the Chelsea midfielder and he, he was just like I said he was at the center of everything France did yeah I mean you can't say enough about the tournament that he had and and you know he he is a he is I believe one of the understated uh, real cornerstones of that team and and, and certainly was was a critical part of, of winning the World Cup. Although, yes, you mentioned his his final might not have been the best the best game that he had in the tournament. But uh, the the game against Argentina, I are you know arguably I thought that was France's best game of the tournament. I thought that was they had been so uninspiring really throughout the group stage. They mm. were lucky to get past Australia. Um, of course, they had the, the the real sort of dour game against Denmark to close the group. But that game against Argentina, I think Argentina pushed them a little bit, was really, I think, their most entertaining game. And as you mentioned, the job that he did against Messi was uh, absolutely outstanding. It was kind of the tournament of the of the central midfielders in a lot of ways. And on the other side of the, the page, we saw Luka Modric, uh, I think quite deservedly winning that golden ball. And I wonder if you if you translate that into French as well, and he might be in the Ballon d'Or conversation because uh, this is a player that obviously won the Champions League this year once again and was classed for Real Madrid and then goes out and inspires an incredible performance from this Croatian side. Uh, I think I saw a stat where he ran 62 kilometers, um, and that was even before the final, so more than any other player. He just seemed to find this unbelievable um, second wind in almost every game, and uh, that you know that takes away from from all everything else he did in terms of passing and, and scoring some big goals as well. Yeah, I have no idea, frankly, how he was able to to keep going. The amount of <laughs> the work rate that he had to uh, to go through to to get that team. I mean, to me, he was most deserving of of winning the Golden Ball, frankly, because without him, there's no way Croatia's in that final, uh, not even close, and. Certainly, no player to meant more to his team than than Modric. Um, I mean, he he plays into that that team concept and and the games being won and lost in midfield and and you know as as far as the Ballon d'Or conversation, I would he, winning the Champions League and and reaching the World Cup final, in my opinion, should put him at or very near the top of that list. Uh, especially considering that, that, you know, and I know their teams weren't all that great and 
they were relied upon to maybe carry a little bit too much of the load. But Ronaldo and Messi didn't have... Certainly, Ronaldo started the tournament strong, but faded as it went along. Mm -hmm. And Messi... I mean, that, that entire Argentina team was up and down and all over the place. It was probably the worst I've seen from an Argentina team, at least in, in my memory at a World Cup in, in a long, long time. So definitely, I, I think Modric has to be at or near the top of the Ballon d'Or list and, and was a most deserving winner of the Golden Ball. Another deserving award winner, Uh Kylian Mbappe winning young player of the tournament definitely as you said this was a bit of his breakout tournament uh, you know one of the most expensive players of all time um, in, in terms of you know the, the move that he made to, to PSG from Monaco but in terms of global soccer I don't think he was necessarily on the same page as a lot of the big superstars the the casual fans maybe didn't quite know him as well uh but now becomes the second youngest player behind Pele to score in a world cup so uh an absolutely incredible you know tournament from the 19 year old and obviously I, I think if you're if you're talking about individual performances at this tournament there aren't many better um than his performance against Argentina where he just exposed that back line oh, completely yeah. Well, it's the pace, and yeah, you know, pace pace is deadly, particularly. And I, you know, I felt that Argentina backline was really old and really slow, and and a player of uh, Mbappe's pace can uh, can run for days on a, on a team like that. And yeah, I mean, certainly he's a player that that really announced himself on the world stage uh, in this tournament. And you talk about players that maybe don't get the sort of level of exposure or uh, credit that maybe they deserve outside of these tournaments. I mean, part of it is is I think that he you know he plays at PSG, which is a huge club in Europe and mm-hmm. and, and in a, one of the big leagues. But it's not the Premier League, it's not the Bundesliga, it's not La Liga, it's not sort of one of the big four leagues. Um, so I'm not sure how many casual fans watch Liga all that much <laughs> or, or PSG for that matter outside of the Champions League competition. But yeah. M- Mbappe really announced himself on the world stage. It's going to be amazing to see what he can do because it's it's just starting for him. He's got he's got a few World Cups in front of him as long as he can stay healthy. And on the other side of the coin, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't touch on Croatia quickly. Uh, fantastic tournament from them. They were the surprise finalists making their first final and I think it honestly would have been a little unfair with the tournament that we had uh, if there wasn't a surprise finalist, a first time finalist considering how many upsets there were. So Croatia were that team and they got there with an unbelievable run of resilience. They played basically four games when everyone else played three to or when France played three to get to the World Cup final considering all the extra time they played and um, there was kind of an interesting interview with Canadian men's national team coach John Herdman, um, who, you know, if you know anything about Herdman, it's that he's super into sports science and that, you know, he, he's always tracking his players and trying to make sure they get the most out of them. But he saw this Croatian performance and he said it reminded him how much, you know, things like team belief and, and tactical excellence, you know, as much as as much as you can look at the sports science metrics, what Croatia did were completely off that chart. And there was something more about the human spirit that still needs to be considered in the sport of soccer. Well, yeah, I think one of the things that you you have to take into account, and it's 
maybe a little bit of, of, of the darker side of the story is a lot of those players grew up during war. Mm. You know, they, they, they lived in a homeland. It was, Croatia was part of the former Yugoslavia that broke up when, when the Iron Curtain, the, the, the Warsaw Pact nations, communism fell in, in the late 80s, early 90s. And, the, you know, there was a civil war in, in Croatia, Bosnia, Serbia. So a lot of those players came up through really, really tough, much tougher situations than what they would have faced having to go an extra 30 minutes in a soccer game or penalty kicks. And I believe that that creates a certain kind of resolve in those players. And, and I think you see that in, in Eastern Europeans and particularly players from the, from the Balkans. And, and that team, personally, on a personal note, I would have pers- preferred to see England in the final. <laughs> but that, that has more to do with the three lions tattooed on my heart. But you cannot take anything away from what Croatia did in this tournament. Uh, just to, to, to be able to have the tremendous group stage that they had, really embarrassing Argentina. I know, again, as I said before, I thought it was Argentina's worst World Cup performance that I've seen certainly in a long time. But the way that they survived and advanced through the through the knockout rounds, through the round of 16, the penalty shootouts, coming back, you know, coming from behind in, in all three of their wins to reach the final, I believe really speaks to the Croatian spirit and, and, and speaks to um, the, the, the level of, I don't know how to put it, but the, the level of passion and the level of resilience and resolve that those players and that team has. Yeah, absolutely. And let's move on now from from the final and kind of look back at the tournament as a whole. Um, when when you look back at this tournament, you know, five, ten years from now, what do you think is going to be the, the most memorable, um, you know, kind of theme of this tournament? What will you mem- remember the most? I think for me and, and you know, my lasting memories of, of this tournament are positive, mm-hmm. definitely. But to me, it was the pace and the entertainment value of the games, the, the number of goals, the, the late goals, the, the intensity of the games. We saw so many really, really riveting games throughout this tournament. You go back to, I believe it was day three, day two or day three in Russia, and that, that Group B game between Spain and, and uh, Portugal with you know the, the Ronaldo penalty to put the, the Portuguese ahead early and then the bookend of the Ronaldo free kick to tie it late. That was, just, you know, a tremendous game with some of the best goals of the tournament in that game. And it really, it really kind of built from there. Yeah, absolutely. And um, a stat that kind of shows that is there were nine goals in the 90th minute or later at this tournament, which is more than any other tournament in history. And in fact, it's more than there were between 1998 and the 2014 tournaments, according to BBC. So that's an unbelievable amount of late goals. And on top of that, there was just so many, 
you know, turnarounds, comebacks, and um, underdog stories as well. One of the biggest ones, obviously, was was the host team, and they didn't play the most inspiring uh, game of soccer. Obviously, they didn't have a lot of possession or or anything like that. But uh, the Russian team that was supposed to kind of be this. Um, super underwhelming side came into this tournament and uh, made quite a run for themselves obviously beat Spain and uh, took the eventual finalist Croatia to penalties yeah and I, just back to the to the to the prior point that you made and, and the stat that you threw out there about mm-hmm. the number of goals coming in the 90th minute or later I think that's a byproduct of VAR because you looked at the amount of time added to the second half rather than what we were sort of we'd sort of gotten used to at the standard 3 to 4 minutes we were getting 5 and 6 or more minutes added to the ends of games so that provided a little bit more time there for teams to score goals at the death uh, as to the to the russians I, I mean you have to take your hat off of them i i think they played maybe a little bit of possum in the run up <laughs> to the tournament because they were so poor in, in the pre-tournament games. And, and then they really announced themselves right on that first day with that, that win over Saudi Arabia, the 5-0. The I do wonder with the Russians whether it might have been a little bit different for them had uh, Mohamed Salah been, been fit, fully fit for, for mm-hmm. Egypt, particularly in that second game. Because I think that was really the game where the tournament hinged for... Either one of those teams is is if Egypt is able to win that game and that have the last game against Saudi Arabia, it might have shifted things, but they were able to survive, get out of the group, and of course, what they did against Spain, absolutely remarkable. Um, just the the defensive fortitude. I believe that over the hundred and twenty minutes, the Spanish completed over a thousand passes in yeah. that game. And had about 75% uh, possession. And yet the Russians found a way to survive. And then, of course, taking Croatia to, to, uh, to, to penalties as well. They very well could have ended up in the final. You know, they, had they gone through and not Croatia in that penalty shootout, maybe they beat England and maybe mm-hmm. they end up in the final against France. So I think that home field and not getting embarrassed in front of the world at home is a huge motivator. And I think it can take a team maybe a little bit further than where they would go if they were playing somewhere else. So I, and and, and I think for Canada, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens for us potentially. uh, And what that means in eight years when, when the world cup is on our soil. Another big theme of this tournament, and obviously you mentioned the three lions tattooed on your heart, and um, just the fantastic run for for England. And obviously, I think things opened up for them a lot. That you can't discount that this wasn't the run that many people expected. But at the same time, there were a lot of teams going into this tournament that we thought were favorites that weren't able to take advantage of things opening up in this tournament. So. Uh, a ton of credit to England and kind of restoring the belief in a country that 
um, has had so much disappointment when it comes to soccer. And now this seems like it could potentially be a, a turning point for English soccer. They've had so much success at, at the youth level now and uh, starting to develop more talented players. And that was fully on display at, at this competition where a number of young players who are going to be good at the next Euros and at the next World Cup as well came in and had great tournaments and really led this English side uh, to a semifinal appearance. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the attitude around around the English team has changed, and and the way that they do things, and the way that that Southgate is doing things, is is very different than the sort of old English approach. It was a much more team oriented um, setup by Gareth Southgate, as opposed to sort of the way they would go to tournaments in the past. Is they would just find all the best players and bring them into the team. And it didn't, because they were the best players, they could play out of position, no problem. Hmm. That's not the way it worked. And there were too many competing egos. And to have players like Harry Maguire and Jordan Pickford and a few of the others really step forward and really acquit themselves really well on the world stage, I think bodes very well for England. I'm very curious to see how England progresses through the next two years and how they perform at Euro 2020. That said, it's really, really hard for me and I think for anyone else to really take too much away and say, you know, it, it, you know the, the it's coming home thing. <laughs> I think it's maybe too far to leap that, that that's going to continue on because, frankly... Outside of the Belgium game, England's run through the group stage was re- it went basically according to plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, they beat Panama badly. They got past Tunisia. The Colombia, you know, getting past that sort of bogey penalties roadblock that's always been such a thing for England, I believe, is a big deal. But the Colombians weren't exactly world beaters. The same thing goes for Sweden. They thought, you know, England played very well in that, in that game, fully deserving of the win, but it was Sweden. It wasn't Germany. And going into the tournament, that's actually where I had England going out, was in the quarterfinal to Germany. Mm-hmm. And with the Germans going out, it opened the door, obviously, for England and for everyone else, for that matter. Um, you know, the, the Croatia game... We saw signs of it against Tunisia and a bit against Colombia, but when England was put under pressure, when they faced adversity, they they reverted a little bit back to some of those old England tendencies of just lumping it forward, hope for the best. They kind of threw their game plan away and, and threw the the things that really made them successful at other stages of the tournament kind of threw that out the window and it was a little bit chaotic. Be interesting to see if as this team develops and grows and gets more experience at this level, whether they can find a way to maintain composure in those big moments, particularly when those big moments aren't going well. So I think that's the big thing for England going forward is just continuing that mindset of having a plan, sticking to the plan and not deviating from it and seeing if they can find success from there. Yeah, for sure. And interesting next couple of years for England. And 
Uh, we've reached a, a bit of a bittersweet moment uh, in the podcast where we're going to leave the, the World Cup talk behind. This is the last we're going to talk about World Cups for, for a little while. So, um, we're going to miss it, aren't we? Yeah, already, I, I already am. Our, our, our colleague James Gross, he's been joking about uh, just re-watching the tournament and waking up every day at 9 to <laughs> turning on a game uh, just to kind of wean himself that off that vibe of it, going, but, right? Pardon? Just to keep that vibe going. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, no, I think it's best to, <laughs> to cut the cord here and, uh, you know, leave the tournament as it was. And um, we're going to move on to talking about some Toronto FC and... Uh, let's start a bit with the the positives obviously last night they won a game and um the last time you came on the show i think was the end of may so we've only been able to say that once uh since then uh that that philly 2-1 win so um these, these so wins have been, ago. yeah these wins have been so few and far between but obviously they beat uh the Ottawa fury 1-0 away uh last night in the semifinals of the Concat- or the uh, canadian championship I thought it was a pretty tidy away performance. Obviously, um, you know some some difficult moments, but in the end, I think the you know they just needed a result at this point. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what you, I don't know how much you can really read into that result because you are playing. I mean, it was basically a USL plus a few MLSers hmm. beating a USL team. So I don't know how much you can take from that going forward. Certainly, I think it's it's an encouraging result for those kids to get the meaningful game action and succeeding at that level. Beyond that, I'm not really sure what it means for TFC as we move forward through the second half of the MLS season and potentially into the final of, of the uh, the Voyager's Cup, but certainly it's a nice result, and it's it gets maybe some good feelings going around uh, around the locker room. I thought Greg was uh, Greg Vanny was was maybe a little bit. Um, I didn't think he was understated, but you know he just said we we came here, we knew what the job was, and we did the job, and now it's time to go home and finish the job at least for for the semifinal at home and then you know, hopefully build on it in MLS play and see if you can't find a way to get yourself back into the playoff race but they're certainly not going to do that with the team that was playing last night they they're, they're going to if they're going to get back into that playoff race or win this competition they're going to have to get some of those injured bodies in Chris Mavinga Drew Moore in particular, Josie Altidore and Victor Vasquez back. Those guys are key for for TFC to start turning some of the negatives into positives. In that light, were you, were you kind of surprised when you saw the roster last night? Because I figured there'd be, you know, maybe a handful of, of these Canadian kids in there, but I didn't expect it to be that many Canadians and that few of, you know, obviously no designated players. Um, and, you know, a lot of MLS regulars were, were left out of the lineup as well. I wasn't shocked at all, to be, no. to be completely honest with you. I think those guys that you've been relying on for so long, the Bradleys, the Jovinkos, they're tired. Yeah, this is one. This is one tired team. You look at that Orlando game, man, and the second goal, the killing goal, 
the Dom Dwyer goal, you know, it's a tremendous strike. Yes, the back line conceded too much space to him. But, man, you look, you look behind Dwyer and you look at those midfielders and they look like they're running in sand. This is... I don't know whether injuries... It's, I, I don't know whether it's the injuries that, that is really a thing, although those four guys that I mentioned who have been out basically since the end of CCL... That those are four huge components that they need to to win, and the guys who have been able to maintain their fitness and stay healthy, they have to be tired. Bradley Bradley to me looks like he's almost running in reverse. Um, <laughs> just looks like he's out of gas right now. Yeah. So I was not at all surprised to see Greg do a little bit of squad rotation and, and get some guys in there also bearing in mind that as we saw last night, TFC can beat the Ottawa fury without its best players, you know, no disrespect to Ottawa at all, but it is a USL side. Mm-hmm. They r- really shouldn't be competing with TFC's first team. So that, to me, was an opportunity to get those second-team guys in, get them, some, get them some playing time, get them some minutes, get some good feelings going in, in, that, you know, in that part of the squad. You know, again, if, it's, if you're facing Montreal or Vancouver, maybe it's a completely different story. But I don't think there was any disrespect to the competition. I don't think there was any disrespect <laughs> to the opponent. I think it was just managing your squad through what has been already been a very, very long season. At the same time, you know, it kind of strikes me, and obviously Toronto FC isn't going to say this publicly because publicly they all still believe that um, they can get back in the playoff race, and they, they have to. I mean, you can't just give up or there's absolutely nothing to play for and all these games remaining in the season are, are pointless. But for me, and I you know, it's getting so hard to see them climb back, climbing back into that playoff spot. These Canadian championship games are the most important games remaining in the season. So um, especially in that home leg, I almost wonder if, if maybe we will see a few more of these uh, of the, of the regular MLS guys. I don't know. Cause again, do you need those guys to beat, especially, you know, to mm-hmm. beat Ottawa, especially with, you know, the one the one zero lead and and that one goal being an away goal. Yeah, I personally would rest everybody that I can. I wouldn't be throwing in the towel on the season, not by any stretch. I know they're facing an uphill battle, and that's that's being kind. But there is precedent that they could potentially get back into this thing. You get those four guys back. And mm-hmm. as far as we know, Altador is, I believe Altador was actually on the bench for the Orlando game. Yeah. Moore's got to be on his way back relatively soon. You get Mavinga and Vasquez back, and if you can keep them healthy and keep the other guys healthy, what's to say this team can't reel off four or five game winning streak? And to put it in a little bit of perspective, you think back about a month and a half, two months ago, Montreal was behind TFC. They were a point back of TFC. 
They've gone on a Good run point. of five or six really positive results, wins, a couple of draws in there. I think they dropped a game to New York City. And now they're sitting in sixth place, and they're 11 points up on TFC. So for TFC, if you can get on a run of winning six of eight and some of the teams in front of you start to falter, and you got games against those teams, Chicago, the back-to-backs against Chicago coming up this weekend and next are absolutely massive. If you can Mm -hmm. take four of six or ideally all six points from those games, I'm not saying it's going to happen, and it's certainly based on what we've seen in in the recent past, you wouldn't bet on TFC at all. (laughs) But you get some of these guys back, and it changes the look of the side, and it changes the feeling in the team, and it changes the confidence level of the team because frankly right now the confidence looks really really low yeah bono is 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 fighting the ball clearly and he has been for a while and i think it goes back even before that canada day game where he 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 muffed the the long shot early on in the game and and that ended up being the winning goal against the red bulls too many guys trying to do it's like they're not trusting each other they're not they don't have confidence in each other, and they're trying to do too much on their own. Jovinko, in particular, is, is doing that, and there are a couple of other guys who are doing that. You get those two backline guys and then Vasquez and Altador back, and I believe it changes things a little bit. And then let's see what happens from there because I, I really do believe there is the possibility. It's maybe a little bit remote. But if the teams in front of you start to falter and you can get on a good run, you can get back into this thing without question. Yeah, it's interesting. Greg Vanny's kind of mentioned to pick up on on one of your earlier points about how players kind of have been trying to make plays that save the season almost, how they've been getting the ball and saying, I'm going to be the guy that's going to turn this around. And um, that hasn't been working at all. They, you know, they they just haven't connected um, on a complete level at, at any point in the past few games. Um, let's talk a bit about the guy who captained Toronto FC last night um, in in Ottawa, Jonathan Osorio. Uh, this has been obviously his biggest season for Toronto FC. He's been uh, their MVP up to this point. I think it's eleven goals in all competitions now, and. You know, it's just been an excellent season for him, kind of his breakout season, what we've all kind of been waiting for from Jonathan Osorio, which is to match all of this talent that he's obviously had for so long with production. At the same time, his contract is up, and there there are, you know, Tim Bezbachenko has said on record that there are plenty of teams interested in Jonathan Osorio, um, you know, if they're going to move him, this kind of seems like the right time when his value is incredibly high, and um, you know the 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 money is there. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, uh, th- that move would be so tough to sell to the fan base. Well, yeah, he's he's arguably been one of your best players, mm-hmm. and so certainly his value in the transfer market is obviously the highest that it's ever been and might be the highest that it ever will be. And I, I mean, I'll go on record right now. I don't think that Jonathan Osorio is here a year from now. I Mm. believe that he is one of the most underappreciated players in MLS. And if he can't get 
a very good deal elsewhere in MLS, I think he can find a home in Europe and, and you know, make a, a, a nice wage and, you know, see what opportunities lie for him across the pond. You know, barring that, I'm sure that MLS teams have noticed what he's done. After what he did in the Champions League, I'm sure there are Mexican teams that have taken notice of what he is capable of. I have a very hard time seeing Jonathan Osorio with Toronto FC at this point next year. I don't know when he's going. I don't know whether it will be, you know, during this summer. Uh, and if if he does go this summer, it might be a sign that TFC is waving a white flag on the season or whether he'll go in the off season. But it looks to me as though TFC is not... What's the word I'm looking for? Not overly uh, ambitious isn't the word I'm looking for. They don't seem overly urgent. There, there's a lack mm-hmm. of urgency to, to get this done on their side. Or maybe Osorio is simply just not willing to really talk about contract with them too much and, and is, is going to try and hedge his bets elsewhere. But certainly the way that he's played... Uh, his value, at least in the transfer market, is is pretty high. He's, he's said for years that um, he, he does eventually see himself going to Europe. So this almost seems like a natural time where he's he, he definitely has an outgrown MLS. That's uh, but he's showing himself to be a top player within MLS now. So uh, this is a time where I think you know when. <laughs> You know, when there's so much interest for him, he might as well uh, take this opportunity. And uh, obviously, I think it would be great for the men's national team to see Jonathan Osorio take that next step, uh, because I do think he's going to be a cornerstone piece of that team, uh, certainly for this upcoming World Cup cycle. And potentially he could be an important piece uh, going forward. So um, I tend to agree. I think that I think that this is some of the last we'll see of Jonathan Osorio with Toronto FC. And I, I don't think that's necessarily the, the mistake stake of either side and if Toronto can get good money for him um, then it's a fine move and we've already obviously seen Toronto FC they've already been a, a bit of of sellers in this uh, in this window so far with Agar Akeche departing um, apparently uh, they got a significant amount of his salary back that's what Tim Bezbachenko was saying for uh, the loan deal to Cadiz which is um, you know, might open up a window for them, but I wonder. You know, it, it becomes interesting now. Like, what what do you do with that space? Because I don't think you want to bring in a player that um, is kind of short term and uh, just to turn this around. Because, like you said, it's it's hard to bet on this team right now. I, you know, I wonder if you want to look longer term and make sure. Okay, if if this season doesn't work out, at least we'll be set uh, for the future. Yeah, I mean. I think you do have to look for longer term solutions mm-hmm. and I, I I would personally be looking at center back because we've seen this team is pretty thin uh, you know as far as depth goes at center back and and frankly I give you know all the credit in the world to to Nick Hagland and and uh, Eric Zavaleta and they are good complementary pieces but you have to have you have to have better communicators at the back. You look at Orlando's first goal, the Schuler goal. 
that's just that's just straight breakdown in communication. And uh, Haglin was had no idea that he was there, and he got in behind. And that's that's really that's a goal that doesn't happen if you have a more active and more leadership at the back. That's mm-hmm. what they're lacking right now in terms of the back line at the center back position. That's where a, a Drew Moore is so critical. And as we know, Drew is on the dark side of thirty, mm-hmm. and you know fitness could be becoming an issue with him. And TFC needs to look to fill that gap because. Frankly, as much as I like uh, Nick Haglund's aerial ability and I like what Eric Zavaleta brings as well, the two of them out on the field at the same time is not a recipe for success for TFC. They need more leadership at the back, and those two guys, they just don't feel can provide it, at least not at this time. Maybe, particularly in the case of Haglund, it comes with age, Mm -hmm. but... You know, right now, simply at that position, with both Moore and Mavinga out, and you don't know whether they'll be able to maintain fitness once they come back, center back is a real concern for this team. Yeah, I would not want to be in Tim Bespachenko's shoes right now. He's got some very, very difficult decisions, even with potentially some of the designated players as well. Obviously, we know... The Sebastian Jovinko contract situation, that's kind of been pushed to the background right now as, as so many other things uh, come to the fore um, with Toronto FC. Um, let's talk a little bit before we before we leave about um, the, the incident last night in Ottawa. Um, obviously, Toronto FC fans, um, you know, lighting a flare. And um, I, I would presume they... They threw the flare on the field, but I think potentially um, it might have been because they lit their TIFO on fire first. Obviously, we haven't seen, um, you know, we've only seen so much video and people obviously started taking videos after the fire had kind of started. But basically, at the end of the day, they started a fire in an away stadium. We've seen kind of a couple of incidents like this before happen. There was one in Columbia or Columbus earlier this season um, where there were some injuries as a result of of pyrotechnics Toronto FC fans were doing um you know I think ultimately it's just disappointing um as much as I very much like uh having you know those those smoke bombs and the kind of added atmosphere um when it goes too far there's there's absolutely no place and for it and it's it's one of the things um that I don't necessarily think that that uh, our game needs to replicate from Europe no I'm I'm absolutely with you and you know, I, I would I would go maybe a step beyond, and it's embarrassing. Yeah. It's embarrassing for the club that the head coach has to start his post-game press conference with an apology, uh, and it's embarrassing, frankly, to the city. And as a Torontonian, uh, you know, you can say whatever you want about Ottawa and, and, and whatever, Last night, was it was not a good showing. It was not a positive reflection on the city of Toronto. To me, it's, it's pseudo-ultra culture. It's unnecessary. I am, I am all for the passion. I'm all for signs. And, I, you know, the smoke is great. I have no problem with the smoke. There's absolutely no need for the flares. There's no need for the fireworks. I don't know why anyone would think that 
I don't know why anyone would think of taking that to a stadium. Mm. I don't know how they got it in. That's maybe more of an indication as to the level of security in Ottawa, but I can't speak to that because I wasn't there and I don't know what the level of security was, but for whatever reason, they were able to get explosive devices into a stadium. Yeah. And in this time that we live in, with all the things that are going on in the world, I don't know who would be dumb enough to do something like that. It's ridiculous. It's unnecessary. Go support your team. You don't need to set off flares and fireworks to show support for your team. And that's that I frankly had enough of it. Mm. No, we don't know for sure who is involved, but I, I think most people have a pretty good idea. And there have been issues with them before. At some point, are they going to get the picture or, or are, are we looking at the possibility of having to issue lifetime bans in hopes that something doesn't escalate from here? I certainly hope that it doesn't come to that because certainly I believe that that South End culture, particularly in, in certain sections, really adds to the atmosphere at BMO Field and you notice when they're not around. But man, let's keep it positive. Let's keep it positive and not not have incidents. I mean, you're putting your own life at risk. Yeah. They, they set their own flags and their TIFOs on fire, and, and they didn't mean to do that. It was by accident. There's no, there's no way they're wanting to set their own banners on fire and put themselves at risk like that. You just leave the, leave the pyro at home. Yeah, I completely agree, yeah. Uh... Couldn't have said that better myself. Um, and I think we'll we'll end the show on that note. Obviously, uh, next week Toronto FC uh, will will finish up the semifinal of the of the Canadian Championship at, at home against Ottawa. Um, we'll see how this this incident kind of develops. But yeah, as you said, just completely disappointing and uh, uh, not something that that we need to see um, in soccer in general. Um, but yeah, really, and, and if sorry, I may add to if I may add to that. There's, there's, there was a lot of talk on social media about sanctions and about uh, particular groups potentially being sanctioned and, and even read one person uh, sort of, you know, proposing or, or not proposing, but believing that the entire South End might be forced to be emptied mm-hmm. um, by Canada soccer as a sanction against Toronto FC. And it should, in my opinion... They need the, 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 there's a lot of video out there. Find out who these people are. And not only should they be sanctioned, they should be arrested and charged with mischief. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, public endangerment, that, that sort of thing. Because it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. There's no need for that. And it puts people at risk unnecessarily. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but uh, do really appreciate you joining me at, uh, on the show today. Um, things got... <laughs> fiery towards the end sorry for that <laughs> that pun but um yeah yeah um thanks for joining we me. added a little bit of flair here at yeah. the end huh? nice oh man man we should have we should have started with this <laughs> that's what have got us going for the rest of the show but um yeah appreciate you taking the time oh uh, thanks very much for having me mitchell
Yeah, and thanks, uh, thanks everyone for listening. Obviously, we've got the the European club seasons around the corner, which seems ridiculous to say, but uh, we'll be kind of getting into previews of all of those, and obviously talking more Toronto FC um, as as the transfer window and as this Canadian Championship develops, uh, and more Canadian national team over over the next couple of weeks as they get ramped up. So a lot of exciting times ahead on the podcast, even if kind of our big ticket item, the World Cup, is over. So thanks everyone for listening.